Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ted Johnson. We're at Parrot Mountain Cellars in Newburgh. It is May 11th, 2022. Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, as you know, is why wine? I, uh, I have a couple of great partners. We got into this a number of years ago and they are Dennis and Marlene Grant, Parrot Mountain Cellars, wonderful place. That's where we are now actually in the, their tasting room. They, um, I had worked with Dennis in the engineering field, and Dennis is um, a very creative, imaginative, um, um, visionary. It was his idea to have fun making some wine uh, as uh, amateurs, which we did. And uh, people, we shared our wine with different people. We enjoy the big, robust reds, which are not always readily available in Oregon. So we challenged ourselves to see if we could make some of those wines using regional fruit here in the Northwest, and we did that. People thought the wines were good, and this is an old story where people start as amateurs just for their own avocation, mm -hmm. and then are encouraged to go commercial, which people were doing that and we would laugh at them. They'd say, well, you need to enter, enter some competitions as, as an amateur, and there's one I think it's the largest amateur wine competition in the state of Oregon affiliated with the annual state fair. We entered that. It's like a dog show where you have um, gold medals, silver medals, and then they pick a best of show at the end of the gold and so forth. So we got a gold medal for the first wine we ever made, which was a Zinfandel. And then that gold was picked best of show. So it was picked like the best red wine in the state of Oregon as an amateur at that time. not commercial. So at that time we started to entertain the idea of actually going commercial. And this again is a story common to, to many other entrepreneurs, whether it's nail polish or uh, food items or farmers markets where they sell produce. Uh, you decide to go out and see if you can uh, uh, share what you've done with other people. You do that to make money, of course but you also do it because it is as corny as it sounds. It's kind of gratifying to see other people enjoy something that you've created. And I, I think that sentiment is probably shared by a lot of people who are craft people. We did that and, uh, and that's how we got rolling. Uh, then we just slowly grew from there. We're, we're still, as this is being uh, filmed in 2022, uh, we're still not a huge producer at this time. Uh, this number I'm sure will change for those of you watching this archived interview centuries from now. Uh, you can back, look back fondly and, and uh, remember the time when there were just a bit over a thousand wineries in the state of Oregon, which is where we are now. But that number has been growing steadily. I mean, Oregon has really attracted a lot of activity. And that's one of the reasons that it's inspiring, as corny as it may sound, it's inspiring to be even just a minute part of this industry because the people who created this industry were iconoclasts 
they were rebels. They were originally, I don't think it's too strong a term to say they were mocked. Uh, people laughed at them. The idea that you could raise uh, grapes that worthy of wine production in the state of Oregon was thought to be uh, uh, unrealistic, but they did it. They invested time and God knows a lot of sweat. These early families, and there was just a handful of them. And I, I, I never forget that. Again, sounds corny. I, I, I mean, they built the foundation that the rest of us, uh, in our own little way or big way, for the large producers large and small, all of the success, all of the traction that's been gained in the wine industry here traces back to those early pioneers, mm -hmm. the people that had the gumption to ignore the naysayers and build, and, and, they're, and they're still out there. Those originals, and, and a lot of them, thank God, are still with us at this time in 2022. Hope they'll be there uh, for a long time to come. Um, anyway, that's how we got into it. Um, we're at this time 80%, the latest statistic I thought, 80% of uh, Oregon's thousand-some wineries produce under 5,000 cases a year. And we're in that category. We're, we're not a large producer. Uh, anyway, it, it's, it's great to do it. Then we just got out and started marketing the wine. Got. Um, some good, continue to get a lot of good response, which we do knock on wood to this day. Um, and I, I kind of, another challenge to myself, I wanted to see how these wines might stack up, not just from your in-laws and friends, uh, but who may be just trying to make you feel good, but how, how these wines might compete in an objective blind taste test, not just regionally, we were winning a lot of medals regionally, but I thought, how could we, how would we compete against some of the most renowned wine regions in the world, which I think arguably Bordeaux, France, is probably the principal wine producing region of the world, and certainly uh, parts of, of Spain and Italy uh, are right up there as well. And then there's the so-called New World um, wine producing areas in uh, Africa and, uh, and South America. Uh, so we entered some international competitions and we continued to score well in those as well. And that was, again, just as a sort of a uh, validation, if you will, uh, to see how our wines would stack up because the grapes that we use for most of our varietals are not typical to the Oregon wine industry. Out of that thousand plus wineries, there's only a handful that uh, we always say we're God knows we're not the only one, but there, there are not many who are doing the Bordeaux wines. Mm -hmm. uh, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauv, Sauvignon, uh, Merlot, Malbec, um, Tempranillo, which is Spain's number one grape, principally grown in northern Spain. We, it's, it's a great favorite. People love it mm -hmm. in the Rioja region. And from Italy, we do a couple of Italian wines, uh, or grapes that originated in, uh, in Italy. We're not importing our grapes from Italy. They're, they're grown regionally, and that's what we love about it. But Sangiovese, which I believe is the number one uh, grape in Italy, and Barbera, I think it's roughly number three most produced grape in Italy. Those are all favorite wines for our customers. They look forward to them. 
<clears throat> they're pleasantly surprised to see that they can get these made as true Oregon wines. That's been a differentiator for us that we've really enjoyed. We, it started out for selfish interest. Those are the wines that we personally enjoy drinking. They pair well with all kinds of great foods. Uh, obviously, we, we know that. Um, and I always tell folks when we're tasting wine uh, at an event of some kind, I'm very sensitive to culinary taste change. A lot of people are vegetarians today. So it's instinctive to say, hey, this robust red, this goes great with brisket or prime rib. And then I think of the vegetarians, the non-meat eaters, and I say for those who don't eat meat, I would suggest taking a piece of tofu and cutting it in the shape of a cow and enjoying it with this wine. And, uh, and uh, I think that can be appropriate too. <clears throat> so we're trying to have a palette, a spectrum of wines that would be appealing to lots of people. And again, I haven't said a word about Pinot Noir. I want to I want to pay homage to Pinot Noir. It is the state's signature wine, as we know, and we make Pinot, um, Chardonnay, uh, another great wine, uh, largely uh, considered associated with the state of Oregon. Those great Burgundian wines, and God bless them. Our industry would be nothing without those wines. But we wanted to again try to make uh, a larger variety of portfolio and that's what we've been able to do. It takes a lot of work to do that because um, there are only a few select uh, vintners in the region that, uh, that grow sizable quantities of those grapes that we go after. But our customers love them so mm -hmm. we, it's all about the customer, right? Another cliche for you. That is, that is true though. I mean sometimes cliches are uh, are worth invoking. <laughs> sure. So let's back up for a minute and talk about kind of life before wine. You mentioned you mentioned that you knew Dennis as, as engineer. So tell me about uh, life before. Uh, where did you grow up and where did you go to school and what was your career before wine? I am an Oregon native. Um, and at this time, again in here in 2022, the last time I counted there were uh, yeah, eight Oregon natives left in the state of Oregon, <laughs> and so I'm one of them. And uh, grew up here all my life, so I'm very accustomed to the climate here, realize how challenging it is. I, it was interesting for me as I learned more about wine, I learned about, I always knew what the seasons were like in Oregon because I grew up here. <clears throat> but um, then it was fascinating to me to see how those uh, affected uh, the wine industry, for example, at, uh, uh, in the fall at harvest time, all of the uh, vineyards are on needles and pins because you need to get the harvest in before the rains begin in earnest. And you realize that is the dogma that everybody is, their, their shields are up, their antenna are up, they're finely tuned, they're, they're looking at every weather report because if you miss that window of bringing that fruit in, you're going to risk rot, mildew. Um, it, it could be devastating. It's also very dicey. Uh, again, in this particular year, there's just two weeks before this mm -hmm. interview was filmed, uh, we had a devastating late frost in Oregon and in the Willamette Valley. Uh, the story is that 50% uh, or more um, of the crop was lost. 
In 2017, in Europe, they had a devastating late frost that wiped out grapes in Bordeaux, in Italy, uh, again, 50 or more percent. So farming of any kind is inherently dangerous. It's very, very tough. We thankfully source our grapes from other vintners around the state. We are not a large grape producer. We have a very small growing capacity. But most of the grapes we get from a variety of vendors. That gives us the flexibility to seek out the growers that have the grapes we want, with the age of the, the vines that we want, with the microclimates that are conducive to bringing the best characteristics out of these renowned and beloved varietals around the world. And as we all know, winemaking is full of nuances. What is the composition of the soil? What uh, are the climatic conditions? On, on my website, catmancellers.com, I recorded two vintners who did an outstanding job, very succinctly, two minutes each, explaining why in their respective vineyards the conditions are very much like those of the finest vineyards in the world, which are in Europe. And one of the one of the folks picks up the soil and shows you the little pebbles and the chalkiness of the pebbles and so forth. The other one uh, happens to be along the Columbia River and he describes the importance of wind. I hadn't realized, but wind thickens the skin of the grape, changes the ratio of the pulp to the skin, and adds to the richness of the color, the character of the end product. And a lot of, when you're drinking wine casually, you don't think about all of those intricacies that go into making great wine. And there are many variables. Wine can go sideways, and you need to try and anticipate that and work around it. So that's part of the challenge. You asked me about the earlier life of the, the guy, my partner and his wife, Dennis and Marlene. Dennis and I work for an engineering firm. He has that analytical engineering mind and, and Marlene is great with the chemistry, understanding the chemistry of winemaking. And their brain power is uh, um, absolutely uh, indispensable for coming up with, and we all work together. To, we make some different wines and they have variations on them, uh, but uh, uh, we work as a team. And, and that leads us to the, to the topic of collaboration, and I know many other people you've interviewed have probably commented on this as well, but uh, something I learned early on when we first got into this business was how really, um, I, would, I would almost say moving it is to see the degree of selflessness and the willingness to help uh, other winemakers with equipment, labor, uh, ideas. I, I, I really think um, in this business uh, there isn't a sense of other wineries being competitors as much as collaborators. And, I, and I, I was surprised, to be honest with you, I was surprised to see that when I got in the business. I thought everyone's going to keep secrets and be shadowy and all that. Are there some proprietary things you do for your wives? Sure. Um, you would uh, 
not give up some of the things that we do that, that we think are special to our wines, the way we age them and the, the way things that we do with them. I mean, we would give, give them up probably with some gentle waterboarding, but I mean, short of that, we would want to hold that to ourselves. Uh, but anyhow, the, the, you know the old cliche that uh, when uh, in farmland somebody's barn bur burns down, nobody asks if they can help, they just show up with lumber and tools and they just start building. And boy, I've seen that, I have seen that in the wine industry, that there's a great sense of giving. Mm -hmm. So that was gratifying to me. I really enjoy that, I enjoy that to this day, the sharing <clears throat> and the willingness to help other people. Anyhow, I would say that uh, certainly the, um, in the engineering business, um, we, uh, we also learned about, uh, we both work for an employee-owned company. So that now we're getting into the marketing of the wine. I, Employee ownership is a rarity in any industry in this country. But one of the people you have interviewed is a great patriarch in the wine industry, Ken Durant. Durant Vineyards and his wife Penny and their son Paul. Uh, and the three of them work together today. And coincidentally, um, uh, we worked for Ken Durant for many years in the engineering business. And we watched how he and his partner, uh, Wayne Hansen, uh, emphasized the importance of employee ownership, distributing profits to employees at the end of each year. I've never seen anything like it. And um, a lot of companies don't do that, and most of them don't. But there's that, um, it imparted uh, a kind of egalitarian spirit uh, where you want, you enjoy your, your customers uh, seeing them drink the wine and like the wine. But it's also fun to see people who are working with you are participating in the success. And I try to structure uh, the folks that help me sell uh, so that they can uh, often participate in, uh, in whatever uh, financial gain we get out of it. Um, anyway, so, so it's that spirit of, of um, trying to share with everybody that that somehow relates back to the winemaking itself. The fact it's an agrarian uh, practice. I know there's something that's wholesome about seeing anything coming out of the dirt and that, and that it produces into this beautiful, I mean, people revere wine. I, I My nickname for wine is uh, campfire in a bottle. And what I mean by that is if you're walking down a beach, we've all been in a situation, I think, when you see campfires at night, and you're taking an evening stroll, and you wonder who's at that fire? What are they talking about? What are they drinking? What are they eating? Um, and if you go over to that fire, you'll be, probably you'll be welcome because the fire is a catalyst. It warms you, it lights everybody, it has a glow. It makes everyone feel good. You know, wine is the same thing. If you take wine to a party, people will follow the wine around the room, whether it's in the kitchen or the, or the, uh, or the living room. It's a magnet. It's a catalyst for sociability. And I think of it, I just thought of it as, this is like a campfire. I mean, it's this bottle, this liquid. I love beer. Uh, I'm not an expert in spirits or beer. Um, 
and I've drunk a lot of beer like a lot of us have, and, you, and I've enjoyed it and respected it, but you know, nobody talks about a beverage the way they talk about wine. They're not as analytical about beer. Mostly you kind of drink it and enjoy it and be on your way, which is not to say the great craft beers in Oregon is a great producer of craft beers do not have their own great heritage of, of, uh, of craft mm -hmm. and beautiful um, production. But I, I've done countless events, wine tasting events and so forth, um, and people will stand and talk to you about a beverage in a glass for an hour, about what they're tasting, how it was grown and all that, and it, it's, it's captivating. Mm -hmm. I think we've had so many generations in our species with wine, thousands of years, that it, it's embedded in our DNA. We, we love it, and I, I actually feel that every time you pour a glass you realize this is part of this ongoing, uh, uh, this ongoing um, flow of, of, human, uh, 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 of, of human culture. Wine is central to our culture. It's not just about getting inebriated, getting a buzz. It is about valuing, again, I know this sounds corny, but valuing the components that went into this product. How is it made? How is it aged? It's mystical. And people actually have close to a reverence for wine. Look at all the organizations that exist just to taste wine and discuss wine. Again, it's not just about getting drunk. You could do shots if you want to get drunk. Uh, it's about really appreciating something that's mysterious and special. It's like the game of golf. I think, why do people play golf? Golf is inherently frustrating. It drives everybody crazy, but they keep going back for more. And again, the humans have a great uh, component of masochism. <laughs> we, I think, like to torment ourselves. Well, winemakers are always trying for that next breakthrough, the perfect, that perfect bottle of wine. If anybody's ever seen the uh, documentary uh, about the guy who made uh, sushi, uh, what was his name? Uh, somebody dreams of sushi. I can't remember his name, Koshi or whatever it is. Anyway, anyway um, it, it doesn't matter. And this, this guy, when this documentary was made, he was in his 80s, and he was acknowledged as the master, the greatest sushi maker in the world, a Michelin-rated sushi maker. And they said, you have achieved so much, you're, you're regarded as the greatest sushi maker of all time. Certainly that must be satisfying for you. And he goes, no, when I go to bed at night, I dream that maybe tomorrow I will make the perfect piece of sushi. You mean at this point in your career you don't think you've ever made? No. I have never achieved that. But tomorrow maybe I will. It's that humility. It's that, that perpetual search to try to do it better. And we go through this all the time. I mean, we agonize. Maybe that's too strong a term. But we, we certainly uh, focus on what can we do? What, what can we do with our oak? Mm -hmm. Well, with the aging, uh, how, how can we, uh, um, the temperatures for fermentation, all of those things, every winemaker goes through this. It's this quest, this endless quest that I think is again inherently part of 
the whole human condition. Everybody's always trying to do something better than the last time they did it. So that's one. Anyway, that kind of relates back to um, your question about, uh, you know, we were in a corporate world for a long time, had a great time, it was a great company. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we were, enjoyed it. I think everybody did. Uh, we served the high-tech industry, so we watched uh, semiconductors in particular watch that come out of the ground in the 80s and become this um, this ubiquitous product called a semiconductor chip, which today we're all totally reliant on for everything. And then we got into winemaking. So it's funny how people get into winemaking. I know a lot of winemakers, and I have uh, a, a great friend of mine is a woman who owned another industry, she happened to be an engineer, uh, in Alaska. and. Came to a solder firm, came to Oregon, says I'm going to be a winemaker. You know, it's, it's crazy. It, it, it attracts people. There is this this uh, satisfaction that you get out of it. Yeah. What was your relationship with wine before you started making it? How how what did you know about it? What did you enjoy about it? And what did you have to learn about it to make it? I'm old enough to remember that there was a time that the United States wine scene was pretty much non-existent. I'm not just talking about Oregon, where it was definitely non-existent until, I guess, the 70s. Mm -hmm. It began in the 60s and then 60s, 70s when Oregon, and the wine industry prior to that in Oregon was zero. It was zero, if you imagine it, and today it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Well, nationally, um, there was very little focus on wine. It was beer and, and uh, spirits, cocktails. Cocktails have come back and become very fashionable again, which is great. The, the wines that I remember when I became of drinking age, which was, of course, only after I was 21, uh, the wines that were, that were dominant at that time, and probably most people watching this aren't, aren't going to relate to this, and you won't believe it, you'll think I'm making it up if you're not familiar with it already, Annie Green Springs, and they had a cup, as I recall, a couple of varieties, apple wine, and they called it berry wine. Berry wine, these were fruit wines. And they were extremely successful. And you had two choices. There was another one called Strawberry Hill that was a strawberry wine. That was the wine that was drunk, most people were drinking, again, beer or spirits. To have watched the winemaking industry uh, evolve in one lifetime, my lifetime, as far as it has, is, is a great thing to see. Um, at a time when, in Europe, people were routinely drinking fine wines in, in a broad range of varietals that people in America really largely weren't familiar with. To see that we now have, in Oregon alone, over a thousand wineries and around the country, it's, it's pretty much a, a, a West Coast thing. They're dominant. California's number one, Washington's number two, I think Oregon is three. A little bit on the East Coast. But just climatically, it's hard for the entire country to be involved in the winemaking industry, which makes it tough. Mm -hmm. It's not like Europe where you have a big wine 
uh, flywheel in Spain, Italy, France, Portugal. Um, we just don't have the, the climate uh, right now. That may change, of course. Um, so my experience with wine was um, peripheral, if you will. I, I drank it, but I drank those kind of goofball wines. And my excuse is, well, everyone else was doing it, man. So that's my excuse. Um, anyway, and then uh, as time went by, I, I noticed that I really enjoyed, in particular, the big, robust reds. I love a wine. I have a petite Syrah that I affectionately nickname the the wine that drinks you. And it just, it's a take no prisoners wine, and I love that. Big, robust, and you know, there are other people out there that love these wines too. There's also a market for fruit wines. Mm -hmm. People always come up and say, do you have anything sweet? And, and we, we really don't, although we added uh, a couple of wines that had at least a little bit of sweetness, just to try and toss them a bone mm -hmm. so nobody gets left out. Mm -hmm. I feel bad enough these days for the designated drivers that they can't, uh, they can't drink anything. And they're making a major sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But I will say the biggest sacrifice is all, of all is we are not legally allowed when we serve wine to drink it while we're serving. That's a strict uh, rule that's justifiably in place. But it's, uh, I don't think it's too strong a word to use the word uh, uh, torturous to have to watch people drink wine for five hours and you can't touch it. Your hands start to shake a little bit and you try to, you almost grab the glass out of the customer's hand and you realize that wouldn't be appropriate. That somebody may call 911 and how embarrassing would that be <laughs> at uh, an elegant wine event? So I, I've been able to control myself not to do that so far, but it is tough. I've wandered off. The sacrifices we make for, the, for, our, for our craft. We do. They, these are the sacrifices. And I tell customers that all the time. I say, you count yourself lucky, at least you can drink. I'm over here. It's killing me to watch you drink. But enjoy yourself. <laughs> I don't want to make them feel too guilty. Just <laughs> guilty enough that hopefully they'll buy a bottle. <laughs> That's my ulterior That's motive. a fine line. That's a fine line. So tell me about the learning then for you uh, from going from consumer to maker. What was the what was the learning curve and how did you sort of approach it? There are so many things that a just imbiber of any food or beverage doesn't appreciate. I am uh, a culinary uh, dolt, and I'm I'm happy to admit it. I'm a wannabe. I'd love to be a chef. With, with you have that copper pan and you're throwing it in the fire, uh, the flames are leaping up and you got the big chef's hat, you know, that's kind of dramatic. But I don't have the knowledge to do it, I'm the first to admit it, but I'm drawn to it because again, the mystique mm -hmm. of how great food comes into play. Well, the, my, I'm responding to your question in this regard that mm -hmm. good chefs know that chemistry is a big part of good food. The chemistry of heat, seasoning, salt, uh, uh, using room, room temperature, like uh, when you are rising a yeast uh, related to bread or, or, or other kind of a, a baked good, 
this is knowledge that a, a, a good cook or chef understands. In wine, it's the same thing. But when you eat it, if you're in a restaurant, you eat this great, all you know is, God, this tastes great. This wine tastes great and this food tastes great. And they taste great together. But you're, you're not doing all the math of the, again, the intricacies that went into the preparation of that food or beverage. So for me, yes, it's been how my perception has changed. It's no longer just about me enjoying it, do I like it or not. Mm -hmm. It is now, uh, how can we make it better? And will, will other people enjoy it? I want to make something other people enjoy, and thankfully they do. Um, it's what's going on behind the curtain at, at, with the Wizard of Oz. You have to look behind the curtain, and sometimes when you open that curtain, just like in the movie, all you're going to see is Toto yapping back there running around. Uh, it's not all uh, uh, glamorous. There's a lot of hard work. Our backs are sore when we're shoveling the grapes out of the bottom of a vat after they've fermented. Uh, when we're out in a pouring rain, you're, you're drenched uh, to the skin, but you have to get the fruit crushed. Uh, you can't let it sit. Um, a lot of sore muscles, strained muscles, uh, a lot of exhaustion. Uh, sometimes you have to kill the pain by taking a break and having a glass or two or three of wine. Uh, that's another thing that there are some therapeutic values in the product that we, we pre-produce. My appreciation for it uh, has gone up greatly just knowing the, the amount of thinking and labor that goes into producing it. Mm -hmm. I would say that. There have been many revelations of things that were unexpected to me that I, I didn't understand. But learning about some of the absolutely uh, uh, the great mysteries that are fascinating in winemaking, how wine ages. The fact that a wine bottle, it, it seems to me it's like uh, the body of, of, a, uh, of a human or, 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 or any other critter. It has a circulatory system. Even when it's in a cellared condition, an ideal cellared condition, that cellar will have a deviation of temperature of at least a degree or two. And the laws of nature are that that fluid will expand and contract even slightly in response to changing temperatures, even in the best controlled cellar conditions, which most people, frankly, don't store their wine in ideal cellar conditions. But that, and this is all stuff I've learned since doing this, that uh, sometimes imperceptible fluctuation of the volume of the liquid in the bottle is forcing the bottle to breathe, if you will, because cork is porous. It forces, when the fluid expands, it forces a few molecules of air to go out. Then when it cools down, the fluid contracts, it sucks a little bit of air in. Now oxygen is bad for wine. You don't want oxygen in too much quantity. But in a, in a minute quantity, it's facilitating the aging because those oxygen molecules interact with the acids in the wine 
force them to precipitate into solids. And of course, once they have solid, uh, they have mass, gravity takes them down and they settle. And those turn into the, the dregs at the bottom of, an, of, of, of a bottle, and which is why you want to decant it if, if you need to. Uh, and when people see, we, we, when we sell older wines, I always tell people, if you see that sediment in the bottle, some people say, oh, that's, that's yucky. I said, it's not yucky. It means that bottle has done its job. It has aged your wine for you. It has mellowed, it has extracted some of those acids and, and softened the tannins. And that's what you want. So I, I give that as an example of something. I would never have thought of that before we went into making wine. I didn't know about where the acids were there, the tannins or whatever. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of tannins in Annie Green Springs, by the way. <laughs> as I recall, either the berry or the apple. I think they were light in tannins. Anyway, it's stuff like that we learn about, or cold stabilization. Mm -hmm. Cold temperatures also allow the acids to crystallize. They gain mass, they drop out, and you have mellowed your wine. Um, you know, you can do it naturally by not using a cooling jacket. You can throw open your, your doors of your winery and let the cold air come in. Of course, we don't have severe cold in our climate often enough that you can reliably uh, expect to use cold, natural cold stabilization every single year, but you do it opportunistically. If, if you have a cold snap coming in, you open the doors and let everything. So I mean, stuff like that that you learn as you go along that you would never think if you're having a glass of wine in a restaurant. Uh, that, and we can also detect issues with wines. When you order a, quote, fine wine, or when we go to Europe and have wine, and there's a mystique about every, the cliche, you can't have a bad meal in France, right? We've all heard that, and I believe every word of that cliche, by the way. But you think every glass of wine will be perfect and every plate of food will be perfect. And yet you see that when we've compared, sometimes we think, you know, it could be just our vanity. We say, our, our wine is better than this stuff, you know. <laughs> Again, could just be wishful thinking. But it gives us, um, broader perspective to appreciate the other wines that are being made around the world. Mm -hmm. When we try them, when you travel, and everybody does this to think, and I've heard other people say this too, that, you know, we have stuff here, maybe it's just national pride. Our wines here are as, as good as, as those are making. So, and I think that is true. Uh, what was it, I think it was in 2017, uh, an Oregon Pinot Noir and an Oregon Chardonnay were named best in the world at a prestigious international competition by a very prominent winery here in Oregon. Uh, so Oregon got accolades for having uh, the best wine in the world. And a lot of, I'm sure people in Europe looked at that and said, well, you know, how did this happen? Um, and, the, and the great movie that was made about the competition between the U.S. wines and the French wines uh, back in the day, uh, Bottle shock. Bottle shock. Bottle shock. Great film. For anybody who hasn't seen it, uh, go see it. It's a true story. True story. And it really is a, is a fun story. So that's inspiring too, is can we make something as good as what people consider to be the gold standard for wines? That, that's always a challenge. See if we can do that. 
You mentioned earlier the kind of the, the, the foundation layers of the industry, the, the families that came here, and, and, and you were talking off camera before we started about the influence of, of Dick Erath on, on your works. Tell me a little about that, about sort of the direct influence of, of one of the pioneer families. We had the opportunity to uh, drink in a bar. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't think they would mind us telling the story. I mean, there's nothing, it's all positive. Uh, the gentleman, we met a gentleman there who's uh, the son of Dick Erath. Dick, he doesn't, I'm not, Dick wouldn't know who I am. I've talked to him a couple times, but he wouldn't remember me. But um, his son, Cal, uh, we met him in a bar, and uh, Cal actually referred us to some people that. Where we were seeking when we first had the aspiration to do to get in the winemaking, we were seeking someone to pick their brain about just the basics. And we he started, he gave us a referral, and we ended up. I, I think hopefully this gentleman won't uh, object to me paying accolades to him. We ended up uh, with um, uh, a guy uh, who. Uh, heads up uh, Resolue Cellars, mm -hmm. and his name is Scott Nelson, mm -hmm. and Scott is a great winemaker. Uh, it, this goes back to what I said earlier about the willingness to share. Scott took us under his wing, he showed us a lot of the ropes, helped us, what a gentleman, and his wife Kathy uh, and their son uh, uh, are running Resolue today, and they do a great job. And that's that's part of the whole thing. He, we weren't paying him anything. He just put in a lot of time and helped us. Um, certainly the Durant family, uh, having known Ken and Penny uh, and Paul uh, for many years, especially Ken, when uh, I worked for him for 35 years. And I watched what he did in the wine industry. I heard his stories about uh, and against the odds, uh, creating uh, wine grapes, planting them, he and Penny and their family. Uh, and Ken is great that we watched him uh, running the engineering firm as well as what he did in the wine business. Ken is a guy who I would respectfully say has a little bit of spit in his eye. And when people said, uh, you can't grow these grapes here, he was all the more uh, intent, say, watch me, mm -hmm. and he did. And, and again, there are the other originally uh, original families that planted grapes in Oregon had that same uh, fire in the belly, mm -hmm. spit in the eye, watch me do it. And in fact, since then they've they're they're raising uh, uh, olives as well, the first uh, olive olive uh, producer in the state of Oregon. Same thing. People say you can't do that. You can't raise olive trees. So I think a little bit, maybe of it's a little bit of it is uh, that sense of challenge. Can I do it? I, can I do it? The sushi guy. Can I make that perfect piece of sushi tomorrow? When we first started out making wine, I mean, the first time, I mean, wine is really just uh, smashing up some grapes and uh, letting nature ferment them with yeast. Of course, there's more to it than that. But I mean, it's largely a natural. Uh, process. And the great winemakers in France, I've heard this many times, they always pay all the tribute to the fruit, 
to the field, not to themselves. That's selflessness again. And as we've made wine, I, I have a greater appreciation for that. It is about the fruit. The fruit is a miracle. It's a miracle. The sugar, the thickness of the skin, the color, the resilience. These grapes sit out there in basically deserts uh, where we get some of our grapes. Very harsh extremes, winter and summer. They have to survive the most harsh cold. And then in, uh, in the summertime, they feast on that heat. Then they yield this miraculous little sphere, a jewel of sweet flavor. And if you've ever had fresh juice, freshly crushed out of the, out of the crusher before it's fermented, You'll never be able to preserve that quality if you tried to bottle it. People say, we should bottle this, we'd make a billion dollars. You would make a billion dollars if you could keep it just the way it is out of that press, but you won't. It'll degrade, even a little bit. But when you taste that, you realize this is a miracle. And then you ferment it, and it turns into alcohol, and that's another kind of miracle. Um, so the whole thing is miraculous. It really is. I can see why people are so mystified by it, why they debate it. The winemakers themselves are eternally mystified. Again, it's, it's the game of golf. That next round, I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got my, I've been practicing my chips. I'm going to get those chips this time. I've got my chip now. And you choke. You know, you don't quite make it. But with wine, uh, it's that eternal quest to keep doing it better. So yes, my appreciation has gone up greatly having to see behind the scenes what you have to do to try to produce the best glass of wine you can. Tell me about your first harvest experience, your first time making it. What were the biggest uh, sort of stumbling blocks for you and what is the progress you've made from there? When we started, we had no mechanical equipment. Uh, we were using all gravity. We were using food grade garbage cans, the white, uh, what are they, uh, 20 gallon, something like that. That's how we fermented. And in wine, and there's punching down, which is taking a tool that looks a lot like a toilet plunger, sorry, but everybody makes that uh, analogy. And now, of course, we have huge bins and you punch down, it takes, you know, hours for us, or about an hour to, we're not a huge producer, but, you know, big producers take multiple hours or they mechanize it or whatever. Okay. Um, but we, we were all gravity flow, we didn't have any pumps, we now have pumps and so forth. So we were really uh, bootstrapping it. Um, and again, it's Dennis, Marlene, and myself. Uh, Dennis had to be in China for one of our early batches of wine. And I remember Marlene and I had, we had a, um, a jack where you could jack this garbage can looking thing up onto a counter. We jacked it up so that we'd be able to gravity feed it into other uh, containers to make that transition. Um, and then we're bottling by hand, everything was by hand. Um, it, it was uh, certainly it was an eye-opening experience, 
and uh, but a, a, a very educational one, and we just had to learn by um, by forcing ourselves to do it. Now at harvest, you're bringing back memories. An early harvest, we went to a, a vineyard, and it was just Marlene and I that day picking up the fruit. It was many hours drive away. We had to. Oh, and the guy said, you can crush it here, you can use our crusher. This crusher was covered with residue of fruit from previous crushings. It was swarmed with thousands and thousands of bees, yellow jackets. And we went up there, and I remember I took my jacket, zipped it all the way up, and put a stocking cap on and everything. And I remember lying through my teeth to Marlene saying, I don't think we're going to get stung. I think we're going to be okay. And she kind of looked at me skeptically as she should have. And I, in my mind, I thought, we are, going to, we are going to just get wiped out here. So we went up there, and I said, let, let me go up there. And I was taking the tools and moving the fruit into the crusher, and the bees were all around. I didn't get a single sting. It was like we had a, a sphere protecting us. Uh, from the wine gods were uh, somehow protecting us from bee stings. Anyway, I was grateful for that. Uh, then later, when we had fermented the uh, wine, we noticed as we put it into the press, there were, uh, sadly, the carcasses of some bees in there. I think we nicknamed that wine Red Buzz, something like that. I thought it was a good, a good name to sort of uh, uh, harken back to the, the day that we had harvested the grapes. Those memories stand in your mind. They're kind of bizarre, little quirky experiences you have uh, using gravity. Now we have pumps, and you know every business goes through its growth, mm -hmm. um, where it, it increases the quality of mechanization and gets more efficient. Um, anyway, uh, I, 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 there are a lot of little, little stories of that. Uh, overloading the truck, bringing grapes back, having the truck almost break down, but not quite because we would have had tons of fruit out in the middle of the desert rotting while the truck was sitting there in the hot sun. And just trying to make it to the crest of that hill because we know if we hit that crest, we can go down down uh, all the way to the Columbia River by coasting and we made it up there but we had tortoises passing us on the road um, it, it, it was it was very debilitating for us I mean we were emotionally a wreck our hearts were palpitating and it was another case just like selling wine you're not allowed to drink it it would have helped calm our nerves when you're driving a vehicle you're not supposed to drink uh, alcohol either and we couldn't drink anything to calm ourselves during that very traumatic experience. So you're bringing back some memories, surfacing them. Hopefully I'll be okay having to, having to relive the trauma. I foresee some wine in, in your near future after to, this interview. I, I, yeah, I'm gonna have to, <laughs> I think. Tell me about making the, the, you mentioned, you know, you started off amateur, you were winning some competitions, you, people were saying your wine was good, people were saying you should sell it. As you said, a story we've heard before and a story that's not, yeah. not uncommon. Yeah. Tell me about making that, that next step then and deciding to go commercial. Um, what were the steps you had to take in terms of coming up with name and label, coming up with marketing? Yeah. Uh, how did that process play out? 
In my case, I have a little bit of an offbeat name, Catman Sellers. Okay, uh, and my partners, Dennis and Marlene, their daughter at the time, they have two lovely daughters, Kelly and Sarah. And at the time, uh, Kelly, I think she was about 12 years old, when we worked at the winery, there were a number of cats, and she would allege that the cats sat in my lap more often than other people, rub up against my leg more than other people, like I'm some kind of cat whisperer. And she said, you're the cat man. And everyone would chuckle, that's very cute. And if you guys ever go into business, you have to be the cat man. And we would, ha ha, you know, that's funny. And probably in a weakened state, meaning I might have had a, a glass or two uh, while we're working, I agree, I made that agreement. So years later, um, we had no intention at that time going into commercial wine business, but years later when we decided we would do that, I was trying to think of a pretentious name. Uh, Chateau Le Magnifique mm -hmm. was one that, uh, do you like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I may have to change it back. I thought, wait a minute. Uh, that would involve me violating a solemn pledge to a 12-year-old child. And I realized I'd painted myself into a corner with that promise I made that day so casually, not knowing that it would come back years ago. The repercussions would be I would have to honor that pledge. So that's how I became the cat man. Now, the good news in all of that is cat people at shows, they come up all the time. And uh, there have been times when they bought a bottle just because of the label, which has a cat on it. And that's okay with me. I mean, you buy it, buy it for whatever reason you want. But then I always encourage them to try what's inside. What's inside the bottle is even better what's on the outside of the bottle. That got us going. And then my marketing has been really very modest. Um, I, I do a lot of uh, direct-to-consumer. I'm all direct-to-consumer. Uh, I've had people, in fact, I was just talking to somebody uh, two days ago about wanting to distribute the wine, and, and I, I haven't done that at this time, but I'm looking at mm -hmm. some opportunities to do that. Uh, my problem, to be honest with you, again, we're in 2022. Uh, we've just come through a huge pandemic that lasted for two years. One that I thought would be devastating to our business. And I ran out of wine in the middle of the pandemic. I ran out and just because um, people, well, part of it is Part of it is because we make great wine. Okay, so I'll say that. But the other part is people wanted to, they wanted anything to drink, whether it was, whether it was great wine or not. And um, it was a paradox to me. I would go out to events. There was nobody there, but the few people who showed up were people who, and I would pull every one of them while I'm bagging up their wine. I, How are you doing in COVID? Well, we're doing okay. As devastating as COVID was, as horrible as it was, with the tragic loss of life all over the world, there were people that, many people were relatively untouched by it. They were still working, but they were working remotely, and they had nowhere to go. 
I just saw a chart the other day to this day uh, in May 2022 the savings rate the savings rate there was a chart going through the years mm -hmm. and it spikes mm -hmm. people still have saved a lot of money they still haven't burned off the money that they would have spent for two years going on vacations going to bars and restaurants they were trapped at home and they needed to drink and I was it's my way of giving back. I tried to accommodate them in stressful times. Anyway, it was a terrible, dire time. Uh, as I said, catastrophic, and we all um, felt, felt that. We all knew people who were affected by it. And I was as surprised as anyone that, that we uh, sold a lot of wine. So my problem really now is I, I don't make a large enough quantity that I um, that I have a lot extra, um, and I it's a new problem for me. I didn't used to, I used to look at these pallets of wine and say, how am I ever going to sell all that wine? And it just the problem's kind of reversed itself now. Anyway, anyway, life is full of twists and turns, as we know. It's true. I think the, if nothing else, in the last two years, we've definitely learned that. Um, you mentioned all the different kind of varietals you like working with, and you mentioned obviously the big, big reds being kind of your draw in. So, uh, tell me about the, the kind of the variety of wines you make. Um, what are some of your favorite to make? What are your what are your customer favorites, and um, what do you think kind of def defines your wine, your wine style? Uh, we we do aged oak. We get uh, we have some special oak that we use. That's one of the little things that we try to differentiate ourselves with. Um, the yeast that we use, every winemaker uh, kind of shops around and ex ex uh, experiments, tries different approaches, and we have some yeast that we think are very conducive to the types of wines that we make. Uh, the length of time that you age is critical. The source of your grapes is critical. We have relationships, again, with some vintners that we've had for a number of years now that it's reliable, steady quality year in and year out. We're grateful for that. Again, paying homage to the, the field. The field is where it all begins. Uh, the quality of the fruit is more important, really, than some may disagree with me, but the, the winemaker's uh, ac expertise. I mean, it, you have to start with great fruit, of course, and then do the best you can. But I've heard this truism by winemakers, particularly in Europe, who say, you know, the idea is to try and, and not intervene with the natural process. Keep your hands off. Let the natural processes do their thing. And that's another insight. You ask, what, what new things have you learned since making wine? That's, I would say that was a revelation for me to, to say, that's not just a trite saying. It really is true. Mm -hmm. If the fruit is good, and if your other, if you your hygiene is good and your oak is good, uh, you can come up with a with a good result. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, on back to the wines. Uh, Malbec mm -hmm. is a beautiful wine. Um, Malbec is difficult to grow. Uh, in Argentina, they make three-quarters of the world's Malbec today. Uh, France got away from it a little bit. 
um, because it's Malbec is in a, and a lot of these grapes are divas, if you will. They're very temperamental. Uh, Malbec is susceptible to uh, frost, uh, mildew, mold. There was a huge loss of Malbec many years ago in France uh, due to frost, and they imagine if you're a, a vintner. And, and your livelihood is depending on your ability to bring in a crop that's farming, whether you're farming wheat or asparagus or anything else. And if you have one or two events where your entire crop is wiped out, you will move to another grape. And that's what happened with Malbec. Malbec fell out of favor mm -hmm. in France many years ago because it was a little difficult to raise. The Argentinians took over. It's still a wonderful grape. People love the wine that it, that it makes. Um, the French, I think, are trying to make more of it. We have very little of it in the Northwest. It, it's a wonderful grape. Um, one of the things I learned in wine is that, a fascinating bit of trivia, I think, is that there are roughly 10,000 varieties of grapes in the world. Over 90% of the wines that are consumed represent fewer than 20 of those grapes. So you ask yourself, well, does that mean that the other 9,980 grapes aren't good? No, they're probably delicious. You've never heard of them. Uh, you probably ne never will hear of them. But those 20 grapes well, the, the funnel has narrowed down to them, not because they're necessarily better tasting or yield a better wine, it's because they're more robust, more resilient to grow. And this, what, this happens all through the agricultural world, that we use wheat for, our, there are many grains in the world, but we use wheat for our cereals and our bread and, and, uh, and many other uses. Um, what, what I like is being able to take the grapes that are more difficult uh, to raise and giving them exposure uh, because people love them. Um, Pinot Noir is notoriously difficult to raise. It's, uh, it, it's, it's dicey, we talked earlier about being on needles and pins at harvest time. Pinot is French for pine and the uh, the Pinot Noir cluster is pine-shaped, and it's, it's a, 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 a tight cluster. There isn't a chance for air to circulate through. Tempranillo, by contrast, has larger grapes, and air can circulate through them. We harvested some Tempranillo one year in southern Oregon. It, uh, three clusters, you won't believe this, but it's, uh, it's a fact, three clusters of Tempranillo filled a five-gallon bucket. The grapes were huge and they were splayed out. They weren't tight, tightly packed like the Pinot Noir. And that's why Pinot Noir is susceptible to rot, mildew, mold, especially if the early rains come. So the, the people in the field, they, they agonize, they go out and trim the canopies so air can come in and circulate more. And then, heaven forbid, if heavy rains come in, then all bets are off and you're going to get, a lot of your grapes are going to be rotten and there's so much agony and suspense being a farmer of 
of any commodity, hail can come in and shred your grapes just before harvest, which is a tragedy. A late frost, as we described earlier, can come in and knock out your buds, and that, that's devastating. So these things happen all the time. Sometimes it's heat, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hail, sometimes it's wind, floods, smoke. We've had a lot of problems with smoke here in Oregon. Anyway, back to our wine. So Malbec is a great one. I told you earlier about Petite Syrah, the wine that drinks you. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful dark red color. Every time I pour it into a glass, I think it leaves a, a red sheen on the glass. I think no dishwasher's ever gonna get that stain out. But of course they do somehow. Sometimes you have to run them through twice. Oh, what else? Uh, Tempranillo, the number one uh, wine of Spain, uh, uh, native to the Rioja region. That's really where things got going with Tempranillo in Rio, northern Spain. Rioja, it likes uh, hot days and cool nights. And because it's somewhat near the coast, you have that maritime influence of the, uh, the cool air coming in at night and that grape flourishes in that situation. Well, if you can find a microclimate in this region that emulates that, you're going to have success with that. A few people are able to raise Tempranillo in the Willamette Valley, God bless them. It's, it's tough, but they're able to. Um, but it's tough for all of these reds to be viable in the Willamette Valley. Now, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is the last I heard, it was, it's fluctuated back and forth between Merlot or Cab Sauv being the number one wine in the world. I think Cab Sauv probably today is still preeminent. Mm -hmm. And you think, is that because, and I love Cab Sauv, and everybody loves Cab Sauv, or a lot of people do anyway. Uh, is that because it's the best tasting grape of all? It happens to be an extremely resilient, robust, uh, organism to grow and that's just the reality mm -hmm. it's tough it's tough a lot of people are survive or surprised when they hear the genesis of the parentage of Cab Sauv is Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc you know a white grape and a, and a red grape so we make both of those and sometimes if people ask are asking about it and I say well these two wines this is the mama and this is the papa. It was not a human engineered grape. Uh, they believe, uh, I think it's, I think that grape's about 200 years old, if, if I'm remembering correctly. It was a, uh, just kind of a wild tryst out in a field somewhere where these two vines, you can imagine them entwining around each other. And this is a family rated program, so I'm going to stop there. I won't get into more vivid detail about what might have happened between these two vines. But the end result was what we, what we, what we love today is, is the premier wine of the world, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a great wine. I read an article about people in Napa, Sonoma. You talk about passion. Down there, they pulled up the vines of Cab Sauv in their precious acreage where it's guaranteed you're making a hundred dollars plus per bottle of cab they were so dedicated to
to giving exposure to some new grape varieties that were very obscure, that they pulled up a few acres, planted a few new grape varieties, exactly what we're talking about. They said, all of these beautiful grapes are going ignored just because they're a little harder to raise or people don't know about them. What a commitment, because number one, you're sacrificing a sure thing, being able to sell your cab saw for good money. You know you're going to have to educate your customer mm -hmm. on this unknown grape wine, and you're going to have to lower the price. It's not going to be $100. I look at people doing that, and I think, I mean, my hat is so off to them that they, and again, the word passion, they are so intent, they, they tried this grape somewhere, loved it, and said, by God, I'm going to go all in to try and get this exposure. So I would say maybe tragedy is too strong a word to use, but I think it's kind of tragic that those other 10,000 some grapes are just out there growing somewhere and they're kind of ignored. And don't you think among 10,000 there'd be some that would just be exquisite? But if their roots get too wet, they fall over, you know, nobody wants to fiddle around with them. That's one of the injustices of farming is that we we raise what not only tastes good but but grows well and and can withstand the uncertainties of climate of which there are many especially when you're raising grapes uh, and it's 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 a, it's a very risky thing to do uh, t I talked about Tempranillo in, from Italy, Sangiovese, which they used to make Chianti. That's a very popular one. And uh, Barbera is very popular, two Italian grapes that we get regionally. Um, and the whites, Sauvignon Blanc is a perennial favorite, Pinot Blanc favorite, and Pinot Gris. Oregon's the largest producer of Pinot Gris. These grapes come in and out of fashion. Uh, we all know, or a lot of us know, what happened to Merlot because of the, the movie that came out. Uh, Sideways. Sideways, which was disparaging of Merlot, which was, I think, unfairly, but, uh, and by God, Merlot sales went down. And uh, it's, Merlot's a, a, a great wine. It's been one of the four primary Bordeaux wines blended every year for centuries along with uh, the other Bordeaux wines. Um, but the wine industry is always changing. Just, I think it was two years ago, this was a shell shock in the wine world when Bordeaux authorized, I think, seven new grapes to be grown, to be planted in that region. And that was unheard of, unprecedented, mm -hmm. unprecedented in anticipation of climate change. Mm -hmm. They wanted to give the growers the opportunity to diversify and survive. And that goes back to what I was talking about before, that this is your livelihood. If you get wiped out, it's devastating, financially devastating. And you're going to give up some of your aesthetic principles of wanting to raise a grape that you love and believe in. You'll, give, you'll forfeit that in exchange for just surviving. I mean, anybody would. They're going to grow what will produce not just a good crop, but produce some income for them. 
but I do think that that always haunts me a little bit that these neglected 10,000 grapes they're out there somewhere <laughs> what would they taste like wouldn't it be fun to uh, bring them forward and see what would happen I don't know the giant unheralded vinification project yeah that would be pretty fun that's exactly right <laughs> Uh, a quick story, which is ridiculous, but I was with a friend of mine a couple years ago in Baja, and we went to a mission up in the mountains of Baja, which is fascinating. I'm told, according to the people there, I don't know if this is true or not, I'm just repeating what they told us, that the first piece of glass in the New World was in the church at this very remote Baja site and it was just this little tiny but it was this high-tech it was it was glass you know and they were kind of they, that, that was something significant uh, we went back and talked to the guy at the uh, the store at the uh, at the mission and he said uh, yeah that that's the first class I go that, that's just fascinating he goes yeah well we have some other first things here that were the first brought to the New World by the Spanish. Mm -hmm. I go, what else? He goes, well, the first grapes ever planted in the Americas are right here. And my ears perked up. I said, really? What? He goes, yeah, there's a grapevine that's over there. I said, oh, is there a path and a sign? He goes, no. You have to know, you have to bushwhack to find it. I go, you're kidding me. I go, I gotta see this thing. So we bushwhack around, he told us where to find it. The grapevine, the trunk, it was like a tree. It was like a tree. I said, it's still alive. After all these years, it's still alive. So now I'm thinking, if you could get a cutting, of, <laughs> I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be legal. But if I could get a cutting and then root it, and bring it back and plant it, so immediately my mind started racing. I already had the name that I knew what I would call it. Genesis, mm -hmm. the first grape. Even if the wine was no good, I think it would sell like crazy. <laughs> but um, the cutting we took didn't root. But actually we didn't, well, on tape I'll say we didn't take a cutting. But if we had taken a cutting, it might not have rooted. Uh, but if it had rooted, I'd be, I'd be driving a stretch limo right now, or somebody else would be driving, and I'd be riding in the back. Yeah, wouldn't be the first cutting to get to Oregon by questionable no, that's, methods. Well, no, that's how. Isn't that true that a lot of our wine did show up that way? All these you hear about all the variations from Europe and yes. other parts of the world. Yeah, questionable, questionably. Question, question for sure. For yeah. sure, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so tell me uh, about what's what's next for you. Uh, you you've talked about kind of the growth and and uh, the different things you grow and, and customers and what's next for you. What are you what are you looking forward to? Uh, I, you know, it's it's uh, it's fun. Every year is different. Every year poses different challenges. Uh, I I would say getting wine into different. Uh, uh, environments, different marketing environments is something I've been remiss in doing, frankly. I'm, I'm a 
on the marketing side, not the production side. I have great, as I've described earlier, great folks that that are part of that process. Uh, but on the for the marketing of my brand, my Catman brand, I'm I'm doing that. I'm a one man band, so I'm kind of stretched. And there are other things I would like to do. And I I won't bore you with all the variations of ways that I think wine can be used, not just to make money. But in my own little way, uh, I, and again, this is one of those, I've said a number of times, corny things, but I always believe you can say something that's corny if it's, if it's sincere, so I'm going to say it. I like to weave in a little bit of philanthropy in my own little way, so I've done uh, tons of fundraisers for um, organization, community organizations of a, a wide variety. And I do that with uh, wine tasting events, which they can then auction off and make some money. Uh, and there are other models that I don't need to get into here where I think wine can be used to raise money at, on uh, an ongoing basis. I think it's, uh, it's my own personal opinion, it's a little bit of an overlooked opportunity because wine, I have sold wine in places you wouldn't believe. I, there's a, a great lady who owns a, uh, a pet bakery, she baked goods for pets. Uh, and she asked me one time, would you do a wine tasting? And I said, well, okay, I mean, do the, do, but I'm gonna have to check the ID on all the, all the dogs that come in. Um, and she said, no, I can, I can handle that. We'll check the ID for them. I don't want to get into trouble uh, serving underage pets. Mm -hmm. So I, I, one of the folks that helps me sell went out there. I said, I can't do it today. I told her I'd do this. I mean, we're not going to make any money. But let's just do it. I mean, she's a great lady. Let's do it. She, she went out there, and I have an app on my phone. I can see how much money people are making when they're selling at different venues. And look at this pet bag. She's killing it. She's she's killing it. I'm going. What are you What are you doing? You're, are you you know Are you getting the people drunk and stealing their wallets or what are you doing? And um, she said, I don't, I don't know. They're just buying wine like crazy. That's one of a number of examples. What I have learned is you can take wine anywhere. It is a total impulse purchase. There are people, I talk to people all the time, say, well, I didn't come here to get some wine. I came here to get some plants or what, wherever you are. And they walk away with one or two or three bottles or four bottles. So anyhow, it goes back to this idea that wine is so integral mm -hmm. to all of, so many of our lives. Getting back to charity, I think there's a way to use wine. And I'm, I'm trying to do it. I, I give people these ideas about how you could do it. And it's too good to be true. I mean, it sounds too good to be true. I'm going to take care of all of the uh, costs. I don't want any money from you. Uh, you know, you're worried about insurance. I'll take care of the insurance. I'll take care of the licensing. People are intimidated by alcohol because they think it's it's very regulated, which it is. Uh, but it's easier than people realize mm -hmm. to be able to convert any space into a bar temporarily. Mm -hmm. 
and make some money that way. So I, I and I've and I've done quite a bit of that for charities. I mean, a number of thousands of dollars over time. Mm -hmm. I haven't even added it up. I should. I don't know why I should. Well, to write it off. That's why I don't even write it off. What's wrong with me? Don't answer that question. That's a, a, a loaded question because then you could you'd take up the rest of the interview listing all the things that are wrong with me. Would you run out of battery? Um, whatever your question was, I hope I answered it. You absolutely did. Let's talk about next. You talked about kind of things. Oh, what's you, next? Things you yep. wanted to expand on. So I, I think that's that's a goal um, to. Um, broaden um, the, the way I involve the wine with mm -hmm. things. We, thank, thankfully, we're, we've had enough years now that we're very comfortable with the quality and consistency of the wine that we have, we really are. Um, and I always say, um, the whatever failings, shortcomings, there may be in this business, it won't be because of the quality of the wine, it'll be because of me. It's on me and uh, I'm doing what I can and I could do a better job, you know, I know I could, uh, like the sushi thing. Uh, tomorrow's another day, we'll see if I can do a better job every day, mm -hmm. I don't know. But we're all, we're all trying to do that, isn't that right? In Absolutely. our respective little niches of life. Or, and if it doesn't work, you, you have to, Try to drink to forget, I guess. I don't know. You talked about your initial impressions of Oregon wine and especially of the kind of the collegiality and, and, and collaboration of it. Uh, I'm curious uh, if there's any changes you've seen in the industry as you've sort of been paying attention to it and been a part of it, and maybe what you see coming next for Oregon wine. It's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up because here in 2022, and God knows in the centuries ahead when people are watching this, glued to their screens watching this, uh, this will be uh, no longer relevant. But right now in 2022, in the last two years in particular, there's been huge merger and acquisition activity in the Oregon wine industry, which I think is absolutely terrific. Others may disagree. Others may want to keep it more provincial and small, and there's always that yin and yang, the strain, the, the friction, the tension between growth and anti-growth. I get it. Um, people don't want Oregon to become Napa Sonoma. It's going to be Napa Sonoma someday, if we wait long enough, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, it, the good thing, the good part of it is it'll create more economic opportunity. Right now there are interns coming into the Oregon wine scene. There are people who can't wait to become part of um, the Oregon wine scene. We ha And I know every winemaker goes through this, it's not just us. One of the discoveries you have is the mystique of winemaking. The people who clamor, they beg to be part of this. And here you are, your muscles are aching. You're soaked with, drenched with wine. And you know, you got uh, bits of shredded grapes in your hair. And I mean, I mean you're, just, you're about ready to fall over. And can, can I do it? Yeah, you can do it. It's the Tom Sawyer painting the fence thing, you know. Can I keep painting the fence? Yeah, you can, you can do another 10 feet. I'm only gonna let you, well, okay, I'll give you another 10 feet. 
We had a woman up here recently who uh, had asked and asked, can I do it? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And she got she wanted to do the dirtiest part of the job with the shovel where you're shoveling the when you're well, you know, sucking the must out into the press. You know, you get the last dregs shoveling it out. She was covered with I mean she'll never get her clothes clean. She was haggard and um, she went home and, and uh, the, her significant other told me later, my God, what what did you what did you do with her up there? She can't keep uh, can't stop talking about how much fun this. She says it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. I said, great. I'm glad she enjoyed it. When can she come back? But there's so many people like that. So I think the future for the state of Oregon is there'll be more mergers and acquisitions. There's been a number of them, as I mentioned, just in the last two years in particular. Oregon is increasingly being discovered, not just nationally, but internationally. Uh, and that's going to continue. Uh, people will come here. We have this great vineyard land, especially for the Burgundian uh, conditions here in the Willamette Valley. But in other parts of the state, um, there's been a lot of ingenuity in, in making those uh, spots suitable for other varietals, other than the Burgundian varietals. And that ingenuity, I think, will continue because in just a handful of decades since the 60s, 70s, when the Oregon wine industry was zero. For it now to be, I think it's five billion a year right now in 2022. Something like that. Uh, which again is minute compared to California and Washington, but it's five billion, you know, it's, that's a lot of jobs. And importantly more again than the economics, it's a lot of people who are enjoying Oregon wine in tasting rooms, in their own homes, uh, not just in Oregon, but around the country. Uh, Oregon wine has, has a cachet on the East Coast, in the South, in Japan, in China. I was talking to uh, somebody just yesterday, I think, about uh, what's oh, a distributor, guys wants me to work with them to distribute wine. I say, how are things in the saying in China? There's a lot of interest in, in Northwest wines. So I think the future is actually it's bright. Uh, I also think demographically, it's heartening to me to see young people in their 20s uh, enjoying wine. They're inquisitive. They want to try it. Um, not every uh, uh, fashion uh, survives a generational transition. An example is golf. Golf, um, and this may rebound, but um, uh, membership in golf clubs went down a lot. Nike got out of um, some of the golf equipment business because their that business wasn't as good as it was. The uh, Gen X, Gen Z, we're, we're just not as interested in golf. They may, as they get older, circle back to it. But that hasn't been the case with wine. And I worried about wine. I mean, the beer industry has had a major shakeout here in the state of Oregon and nationally. The marijuana industry has had a catastrophic shakeout here in the state of Oregon. The wine industry 
has been steady and rising a bit. By contrast, the spirits industry has spiked. That means that wine will always get its piece of the pie, and I've, I experienced that firsthand. If we go to any event, there can be 40 other wineries there. There can be 20 distilleries there and breweries. We will get our share of the pie. Just let us in the door and we'll get our share of the pie because there's enough to go around, and I think that will continue. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very glad to see um, young people that like wine and are embracing it. And one of the biggest problems with the wine industry has always had is a perception of pretentiousness, uh, like it's an elitist product. I like to humbly say that in our own little way, as a, just a little winemaker, we are trying to democratize the appeal of wine to reassure anyone, people come up and they have this, uh, they have this hesitation, this sheepishness. Say, well, I really don't know anything. I hear this all the time. I, I really don't know anything about wine. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to, what, what am I supposed to try? They'll say that, they'll literally say that. I, I don't know, I, I don't know anything about wine. Like I have to know something about it, appreciate it. And I always try to cheerlead and say, forget the rules, you know, it's what you enjoy. And, and other people say this to us, not just me. It's what you enjoy. Um, you need to feel comfortable with it and don't be hung up that you're not an expert in it. See, people don't feel that way about beer. That, oh, I don't want to drink a beer because I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated about beer. Oh, they just drink it, right? And that's, I think more and more, that's where wine needs to go. It doesn't mean that you can't be a student of it and study it and love it and be an expert and get your sommelier license if you want to. That's all good stuff. But for the day-to-day uh, -day drinking, and Europe is more that way. There's always a bottle of wine on the table. Everybody enjoys it. They, they don't get hung up on it. And we'll, we'll get, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's becoming more universal. People's appreciation for wine is getting more universal. There are wine clubs, not just sponsored by wineries, but by individuals that buy wine and share them and enjoy them and talk about them like a book club. Great. Again, it's a catalyst for socializing, uh, for uh, uh, pe people uh, love to use it as, a, as um, something they love in common. And that's a very human instinct, the campfire in a bottle. It's a fantastic answer. It's uh, all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? I don't, there probably is. There probably is, but I don't know what it would, I can't think of it right off the top of my head, no. But. Well, thank you so much uh, for a wonderful interview, for, for your time and your opinions and your stories here today. We really appreciate it. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more.
and stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.